This is episode 52 of the Creative Giant Show. I'm Charlie Gilkey. Thanks for joining me. Though a lot's changed about tech startups in the last 20 years, what hasn't changed is that the players are largely the same and it's not an environment that's friendly for women and minorities. Natalie Molina Nino joins me to discuss what can be done about this and why it needs to change, like yesterday. Ready? Let's do this. Welcome to the Creative Giant Show, where we go behind the scenes about what it means to live a life full of creative and professional success. Creative giants are talented, renaissance souls with a compassion-fueled bias towards action. Now, here is your host, Charlie Gilkey. All righty, Creative Giants. I'm pumped to have Natalie Melina Nino join me for episode 52. A consummate intra and entrepreneur, Natalie launched her first tech startup at the age of 20. She later graduated with a degree in playwriting at Columbia University, driven by the belief in the importance of storytelling in business. In 2012, Melina Nino co-founded Entrepreneurs at Athena at the Athena Center for Leadership Studies of Bernard College at Columbia University with a mission of leveling the playing field for women entrepreneurs, where she remains involved as a founding advisor. In 2014, she was selected by General Services Administration Social Gov community to join a dream team of public participation to help in crafting a guide that details the best ways for the government to engage and collaborate with its citizens. In 2015, Natalie joined 24 women leaders in walking the Carry Hammer runway at New York Fashion Week, featuring role models, not runway models. Natalie has advised industry leaders in both the for-profit and non-profit sector, ranging from multinationals like Disney, Microsoft, MTV, The Discovery Channel, and Mattel, early-stage startups, Cranium, Onvia, and nonprofits like the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, World Affairs Council, Seattle International Film Festival, and Hedgebrook. She contributes and is quoted widely, ranging from Tim Ferriss' The 4-Hour Workweek to diverse media outlets from Bitch Magazine to Forbes and CNN Money. Natalie is, above all else, passionate about developing and supporting entrepreneurs of color and women-led startups. Most recently, Natalie stepped in as Chief Revenue Officer of Power to Fly, a high-growth startup aimed at closing the gender gap in tech. Natalie has been a champion for entrepreneurs, and she's been an entrepreneur herself, and she has the scars to prove it. I'm excited to have her on the show today to share her experience, her expertise, and her passion for making the world a better place through entrepreneurship. Natalie, thanks so much for joining me today on this episode. I'm excited about what we're going to talk about here. Me too. I'm excited to meet you. Okay, so you're involved in a lot of different things. You're, you know, you got, what, six different companies that you're advising in. So take us back. Like, how did you get to here? Uh, that's a great question. Um, I always say that when you go back on your story, it makes a lot more sense in hindsight. Um, you know, when you're in the thick of it, it feels like you're making decisions that make absolutely no sense to anyone. Um, so in terms of how I got here, uh, going back, um, as a kid, I was one of those dual brain, you know, really into art, but also really good at math and science. And, you know, I wanted to pursue art. And as a child of immigrants growing up in the sweatshops of Los Angeles, there was no way my family was going to let me become an artist. That's not a real career, right? It was engineer, doctor, or lawyer, pretty much. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's here you go. Um, so I went to school and I studied engineering. Um, 
you know, I, I had a few moments where I decided, you know, I would stray, but for the most part, I stayed on the engineering path. And then I went to grad school and um, I ended up dropping out of grad school because I accidentally started a dot com. Um, and people don't believe me, but it truly was accidentally starting a dot com. Um, I ended up finding that the dot com was worth something and I sold it and um, I got lucky and did that before the big dot com crash. Um, and then I joke and I, I say, but I think it's true that anything that is sort of both painful and sexy at the same time has the potential to be addictive and startups became an addiction. And I um, was involved both as an entrepreneur and an entrepreneur in five more ventures after that. And then um, 14 years later, I, I got pretty burnt out. I decided I was done with tech. I was done with startups. Um, I decided to take what I thought was going to be a one-year sabbatical um, and my secret sauce had always been that I was a technologist that could communicate in layman terms the story of the companies that I was involved with. And I used to always say that it is not much of an accomplishment to be a good storyteller surrounded by crappy storytellers. Um, you know, in the tech business, this is not what we're good at. And so it was great that I was perceived as a good storyteller, but I always had a sense that there were people that were far better than I was, and they tend to be artists. So for my, uh, for my sabbatical, I decided to go back to school. And I decided to apply to Columbia's theater school. And all I can say is they have a sense of humor. They let me in. Um, I liked it so much, I stayed. I graduated two Mays ago. Um, and during my time at Columbia, I found myself getting sucked back into the conversation about women in tech and about women entrepreneurs. And so I ended up co-founding a center for women entrepreneurs at Barnard College. And so for the last three and a half years, I have really focused my life on supporting women entrepreneurs, um, entrepreneurs of color, um, basically all of the underserved populations that um, both because it's my passion and also because it's good business um, need a little extra edge and I'm, I'm doing my best to give that to them. That's fantastic. So much in there. So, so much in there. So, um, let's talk about that addictive impulse though, real quick. Um, because you mentioned, well, I'll pause and say like, I completely understand how, um, you can accidentally start a business and you can accidentally start a bunch of different things without like ever intending to, it's just kind of see a need and you do something. And then all of a sudden that something turns into something else. Yep. Um, that's a familiar story for a lot of entrepreneurs, actually. So, um, but you get hooked. You got this sort of serial entrepreneur bug, which I didn't understand until like two years ago, right? Um, so, and you, and you got burned out. Was it the hours? Was it the intensity? What was it that really burned you out in that process? Yeah, I'm glad you asked that question because I think that um, one important aspect of that piece of the story is to really take responsibility, right? I mean, I could, I could argue that that's what tech startups are like, that the culture is that way, that um, my businesses were always global. And so I spent all of my time on airplanes and it was the travel schedule. And, you know, the truth is it's not any one thing. The truth is it is all of those things and a large number of them are things that I can control and that I'm, you know, my, my life's work now in terms of my personal development is very much about seeing how I can still be as sort of ambitious and as um, passionate about what I do and still be good to my body. And I was not. Um, and, and it is true that that industry, and, and I, I think success 
in any industry is difficult and on your body and it's you know you're expected to work long hours you're expected to do you know and be available all hours of the day especially if you have offices in 37 countries um but i think that we as individuals all of us who are of that type of personality can do better at setting boundaries and at, you know especially if you're the boss at modeling behavior and creating a culture that is not so unsustainable and i didn't do that um I made a point that, you know, while I required people to work ridiculous hours and seven days a week, I led by example and I did the same. Um, and so it was, it was a combination of many things, but I would sum it up as I didn't set good boundaries. I didn't pace myself. I was constantly sprinting instead of thinking about the long marathon. Um, and I sustained it for a really long time, given how hard I went. Um, you know, I went 14 years basically without stopping. Yeah, that, that's a good point. We were recently coming off of, um, we, we just hired a new marketing assistant. Mm -hmm. And as we were going through that process, I was like, so here's the deal. You can work no less than 30 hours, but no more than 40. And you get to pick that range. And part of the no more than 40 is because we want to look at a sustainable pace and we want to look at you being here for the long term. And we know how prone it is, especially in entrepreneurial startup small companies for you know, that one hour here to create and become four hours and then it's 10 hours. And next thing you know, you've got a, you know, 70 hour work week job and yeah. people are burnt out. So yeah, I mean, it's really important. And that's the thing I think that we often forget as entrepreneurs is that we can define the entire game, not just pieces of it. Right. Mm -hmm. And so we think like we can't, we can build this business and we can be game changers over here, but it's like, actually you can be game changers with the way you set up your company, you know, yeah. all the way. What are yeah. the work hours? Um, is it remote primarily or is it local primarily? Like all of those different decisions mm -hmm. are within our grasp. Yep. And they all come with different disadvantages, but burnout is a huge thing in tech startups and startups of any type and small businesses, you know? Yep. And I think that, you know, one, as I look at the question of diversity, as I look at the question of communities that are underserved, I also look at, some of these institutional things that some of them are unspoken, right? Um, but even in the corporate world, I mean, we, we don't do a good job of developing cultures that allow people to be parents, that allow people to be caretakers of family members, all sorts of things that, you know, somebody can be really effective in their job and you give them enough flexibility to be able to juggle the various different things that are just real life. Um, and they can continue to be successful at their job. You know, we have a model that was developed, you know, a hundred years ago by, you know, men with wives and secretaries who had no interest in actively participating in their children's lives. And so it doesn't serve women, but it also doesn't serve people who care about families. It doesn't serve a lot of people. And so it's this one template and it hasn't changed in a hundred years. And I think that entrepreneurs are uniquely positioned to define these new cultures. Cause I, I don't, I'm an impatient person. I'm not going to hold my breath at Procter and Gamble and Google and all of these companies are going to suddenly change tomorrow. You know, God bless Sheryl Sandberg, who's trying to do that. I'm an entrepreneur. I would rather start the next Procter & Gamble or the next Google and just build the culture right from scratch. Exactly. And when you look at the studies of team employee, or excuse me, team productivity, and you look at like when good decisions are made, after about 36 to 40 hours, people's cognitive capabilities break down. So you're paying people to do more hours to do worse work. Right. It makes no sense. And it's costing them their lives. And so there's this whole thing of like, this is not making sense guys. Um, but I'm with you in some of that, like we can, 
we can work on the edges, we can go to the heart, but we have to like define a new reality when it comes around this. Yep. So you said that you found yourself in conversations about um, women in tech and minorities in tech, right? Um, was it one of those things to where it's like, you know, you happen to be a minority woman is like, let's ask Natalie, or was it one of those um, where there was just something that was bugging you that you, you kind of stood up and took the mic? I wish it was the latter. The latter is more noble sounding. <laughs> the reality is um, being on campus and having myself suddenly surrounded by a bunch of young women and, and students in general at Columbia and at Barnard, um, people start to know what your background is and people start to say, hey, can you help me, you know, prep for this interview at such and such startup? Or do you know anybody over here and over there? And, you know, next thing you know, you know, with the nonprofit, I'm, I'm mentoring all of these women that want to, in some respect, follow in my footsteps. And, and I'll tell you what really provoked my activist sort of muscle to sort of wake up was that I started to feel guilty. I started to realize that there was this whole next generation of women that were going to go and in fact follow in my footsteps and go in the world of tech. And the world of tech was no better than I found it. And I started to really feel the weight of that and think, you know, I'm, I'm sending a whole new generation of people into a world that I know very well. Um, and that has a lot of benefits, but a lot of really silly, unnecessary disadvantages that uniquely affect women and minorities. And I know this, and just because I sort of got through it and, and, and got past it doesn't mean that the industry is any better for it. And that's because I was just busy heads down doing good work and not really being an activist and not being the troublemaker and not being the one that speaks up because there was, in my mind, too much at stake. And there is something very beautiful about being out of an industry and having the shine kind of wear off on it a little bit and realize... I don't care anymore. And now when people invite me to give a keynote or sit on a panel or, you know, talk in front of thousands of people, I have absolutely no problems calling people out. You know, I will not use Uber. I will not support any organization that does not have diversity, that does not have women on their boards. I mean, these are the sorts of stances that I don't know that I felt super comfortable taking earlier. And now the weight of this new generation and their sense of responsibility of making sure that I do actually go back and make an impact and leave it better than I found it. Um, ultimately, it's what drives me. Maybe it's the Catholic in me. I'm, I'm driven by guilt. <laughs> there we go. Um, if all else doubts, like if all you know, else fails, go for guilt. It reminds me of um, Plato and the allegory of the cave where like once you sort of achieve enlightenment and you realize what's going on, like you can't just hang out there anymore. You got to go back in the cave and help other people figure out what's going on. And I had a um, conversation about women in tech with Thursday Bram, who I think it was in the, it was in the teens of, of our episodes. And I've been thinking a lot about that. And it's like, we look at some of these issues in tech startups, where the issues around diversity, both women and um, minorities, we look around um, orientation, we look at around work habits and, you know, parental lifestyles and things like that. And I don't know, I haven't met someone in our age range or younger that doesn't believe that it's broken. Like there's, there's like, it's not like someone's like, oh yeah, all of that's okay. Right. Um, and yet hasn't changed much. Yep. Uh, I have met those people. <laughs> In our age range? Oh yeah. Okay. All right. So I haven't met them enough. 
So you know, go ahead. They're the CEOs of the up and coming companies, not all of them. Um, they're, they're the ones that, that tend to get the most funding. They're the ones that tend to get into the famous incubators. They're the ones that have little bitty 20, 30 per person companies that doesn't have a single woman um, in it. And, you know, they wake up one day because they were at a conference and they think, oh, maybe I should hire a woman engineer. And so, you know, I think that there is um, a spectrum of people and some of them really do, you, you could classify them in the bucket of like, okay, this person is, is sexist or racist or all these things. But I also think there's a big swath of the population that is just um, lazily uninformed, maybe might be the best way to say it, you know, because I do say lazy because how do you live in 2015 and not know about these issues? Um, but it's sort of just not a priority. Um, you know, it's the programmer culture. It's pervasive. It tends to skew young. Um, it's different than the 60-year-old that has never invested in a woman-led business. But the result, the end result, is really the same. So I get it. The motivation is different. Maybe it's not out of malice. Maybe it's out of ignorance. Like, whatever the motivation is, I, I understand that there's a lot of nuance there. And we shouldn't put people on boxes. But what I care about is outcomes. And when the outcomes are the same... Same problem. Yeah, exactly. So you're right. You're right. You know, the thing about this is like, maybe because of the color of my skin, maybe because of other things that I care about, like I can walk into an organization and see a hundred people and all of them be like, look essentially the same. Right. And wonder like, what's going on here? Right. Is, does no one else notice this? Um, and maybe, maybe that's not the case. And I agree with you that, um, you know, the, the brilliance of, say, when you go back to um, Martin Luther King Jr. and the Civil Rights Movement was that he so poignantly pointed out that it was this middle, this middle of the population, that not, not the really rabid racist, right, but this middle set of gentle, silent majority that actually we needed to get involved to make any change happen. Yep. We still see that same problem where a lot of people... Um, they're still in that sort of middle where they're either lazily uninformed or I'll be even more compassionate. You're a junior level programmer and, you know, um, to, to riff on Jonathan Colton's song, like you're just a code monkey, right? You're just in there coding and you might like n notice it, but what do you say about it? Like how, what's the conversation to look around to someone else and you notice this and say, you know what? Like maybe we need to change that around or why, you know, why do we all look the same and do the same thing here? Like, so what's that conversation for that person? I love that conversation because I'm a big proponent in men as allies in the issue of, for example, the lack of, you know, women in engineering, because it isn't just the people who are the hiring managers, right? Um, if we say that the problem is just that, sort of front-end problem, then we're basically agreeing that the problem is a pipeline problem. And I disagree. I think that there is a pipeline problem. That is absolutely true. We have half as many women graduating today in computer science as we did 20 years ago. But it wasn't because the pipeline problem just sort of exploded and, you know, arrived one day. It was because the environment became toxic and unfriendly to women, and it is not any less toxic, and it is not any more friendly. So that is where that junior developer can really do something, right? It is about um, the stories that I hear every single day of the jokes, of the mass emails, of the outings that the women engineers don't get involved in. I mean, there are so, so many things that are pervasive that the junior engineer has very much a lot of control over, 
Um, it's about accepting a culture or saying, no, this culture is actually not okay. Because one of the biggest problems, I think, bigger than even the pipeline problem, is the retention problem. And the fact that we actually have thousands and thousands of women engineers who are perfectly capable um, and who are even available to come back into the workforce, but who won't because of the experiences that they had. I was just talking to a woman who is a senior executive at Fox Studios and has worked in media her entire life. And I asked her her background and she tells me that she graduated in engineering from Stanford. She did one internship while she was in college. She got a feel for the culture and she said, no way. Yeah. Um, so it seems like when we look at any social change, you can't just look at one layer of action, right? You can't just look at the junior developer. You can't just look at the, you know, targeting the founders and the CEOs, right? Um, there's also looking at women who have gotten out of tech that are placing um, pressure on there and the groups like the ones that you're part of that are placing pressure. Um, and then you're just looking at just, you know, everyone. Well, I was having a conversation with someone in Minneapolis at Simple Road. And we were talking about um, the, the power that partners at home can have over these issues as well. Because no matter if they're the big chief at home, like it works, sometimes you go home and you're not the big chief anymore. Right? <laughs> <You think? laughs> and so there's this influence that can be exerted there of like, you know, um, women and other people like getting informed about what's going on in the business and saying, hey, like how many women do you have? How many people, women do you have in a managerial or leadership track? And it was like, none. It's like, well, maybe you want to think about that. Like maybe like, let's have a conversation. Do you want your daughter to live in that world? Yeah. Right. Um, and so I think there's these multiple levels of action that we have to have around this, but it starts with conversations and saying, Hey, there's a problem. We know it's a problem. Here's some things that we can do. And it starts with looking at the context. I also think that like the example that you just gave, right? So you know, you don't have any women at the managerial level. How do we, how do we help women advance? And what's happened, I think, and I, I'm not saying that this is not the right strategy. I'm saying that it's an incomplete strategy when we focus on helping women advance, giving them leadership training, giving them tools and ways and, you know, competitive advantages to be able to advance in a company. But what we're forgetting is that part of the reason that women leave when they do get advanced in their careers and they drop off at the director, VP, you know, just short of the C-level kind of, um, situations and, and a lot of large companies that do have well-intentioned programs are scratching their heads wondering what do we do with this drop-off and I think that part of the problem is that when you get close enough to that C-suite that director level that vice president role when you get close enough to that role that you can see what it ate for lunch you can see how often it sees its children you can see their quality of life because they're in the office next to you and you say no freaking way do I want my life to be that way then the problem is not that the woman needed more support and advancing. The problem is that we've designed the modern workplace to be inhospitable for 52% of the population. And I would argue maybe even more than that. And so when you get close enough to see what those roles look like, you decide you don't want them and you leave. And so rather than focusing exclusively on training the women or helping them get the skills to advance, I think looking at those C-suite positions and looking at those senior level positions and seeing what's broken about them and why they're so unattractive to a, the majority of the population um, and then fixing that, I, I feel like we're not doing enough of that. And that requires introspection and really difficult questions. Yeah, and it requires, that becomes not a talent management concern. It's not an HR management. That's actually an organizational design issue, right? What is, what, so that's a different type of question, but it's still saying like, why do people leave? Because we know 
you know, the cost of replacing a manager, um, it tends to be one and a half times their annual salary to replace them, right? And so you lose someone that's at that level, like it's not, I mean, we can say it's the noble diversity and equality and things like that. And we can also play the like fact that you just lost a lot of money, yep. right? In this process, um, you just lost a lot of money. And so um, let's look at the organizational design pieces. So if you had to say, okay, guys, not guys, okay, people, right? Here are the three to five things that we need to focus on to really change this organization or change this culture to make it more friendly to all humans, not just women, but all humans. What three to five things would you pick on? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> That's, that's a great and at the same time terrible question. Um, if we're talking corporate, do, do you want to... Well, I think... Let's start corporate. I'll be curious to see what's essentially different about the corporate environment than the entrepreneurial environment. But let's start corporate. Yeah, I think it's different. I think it's very different. But so corporate, I would say that the media attention being spoke um the attention that's being paid to uh to, to the new policies right so um unlimited parental leave these sorts of things that is very much focused on the very early stages of one particular point in somebody's life and also like a, a small percentage of the population's life even um and i think what we're failing to do and i'm not pooing those policies i think you know any any help is, is good but I think what it does is it focuses too much on a specific event. And the fact is, is when you have a kid, you don't just need the help in the first year that they're alive. You're kind of in it, you know, for life. So I think that policies that take care of the whole family, policies that take care of the day-to-day -day reality, not just an event, um, are one thing. I think the other thing is to understand that women might have the skills and the know-how, but that women are constantly getting messages that they are not welcome, um, not just in the workplace, in the media, and so many different places that you cannot assume that because you put a call out for, for example, a position, and you send an email and you say, hey, everybody had an opportunity to answer this email, right? The fact is, is study after study tells us that women need a culture of invitation. Women do need to ask, be asked multiple times. Women do need maybe to be provided more information. They tend to need more data in order to make a decision. A woman might have a PhD in neuroscience and she gets asked on CNN to talk about a specific, you know, issue within neuroscience and she'll say, I'm not sure that I'm the right expert because I don't specialize in that area. A guy has read a book about neuroscience and is perfectly happy to be the head of the box on CNN. This is just the reality. And so there are different ways of making decisions. There are different communication styles. Um, there's policies. Um, there's also just the transparency around pay. The fact is, is every single study that's out there that's thinking about the different ways that you can fix gender parity and in income um, fails to be as, as effective as the simple act of being transparent. Tell everybody and let everybody know what they're making and then solve the problem. We know the problem is there. There is no benefit in hiding it, right? And then people are smart. They'll solve those problems. The problem is, is when we cloak them and we don't allow them to see it, you know, it's hard to attack the problem. Um, so, I mean, that's three, right? It's, it's about policies, it's about communication, um, and it is, you know, also about, I would say, you know, the culture piece is one that's hard for me. And that's where I sort of start to jump off the corporate conversation because I have, as I mentioned earlier, um, a tendency to be impatient about change, especially organizational change. And I think that when we start thinking about tackling the culture of massive companies with 100,000 employees, 
that's when I start to think, oh my God, let's focus on the entrepreneurs, please. You know, and let's let the entrepreneurs be funded because 4.7% of all venture capital goes to women-led businesses, even less to minority-owned. Um, let's fix that problem. Let's get more people who think differently to start companies and to have the sort of support that they need to be successful. And then I think that without putting a whole lot of, you know, academia kind of thought into it, what we're going to see is that different models will be developed. You know, it doesn't have to be a top-down thing. Let everybody who's starting businesses, women are starting businesses at twice the rate of men. They're just not getting funded. So, you know, I feel like there's nothing that we need to do except get out of people's way. And once we do that, what we're going to see is very different cultures arise and very different sorts of thought processes driving. Um, and as soon as those companies, those women-led, those minority-led businesses start to become the next billion-dollar companies, I guarantee you the conversation will change. And it won't matter what my opinion is or what your opinion is. Yeah. You know, they're making money, people will get out of their way. Yeah. See, that's interesting because the pendulum when it comes to organizational change has swung the other way for me. Um, and it might be that you're a lot more smarter, a lot smarter, more experienced than I am on that. Because what I'm looking at is, yes, it's a both and scenario, right? In that when we have these large organizations that are employing massive, um, the massive amount of the workforce, mm-hmm. if we're nipping away at the edges, I think what we're going to see more and more is venture capital going towards those edge companies but still not having a big dent in these basically broken corporate organizational ways of living. Right. And so I'm like, maybe I'm just a masochist. Maybe I'm over optimistic, but I'm like, you know, I think we have a responsibility in the same way that you mentioned. This is me. I'm not saying anyone else should do this, but I have, I have, you know, the background such that I can go into an organization and speak Mm -hmm. language and say, you know what, you employ a hundred thousand people. This policy affects 100,000 people and their families. Let's quantify that. That's 400,000 people that are being affected by this process. Rather than going after, you know, 8,000 small entrepreneurs, it's like, that's a harder fight. But I think that fight needs to be, like, we got to have, I mean, again, we're talking social change here. It's got to be multiple levers. And I'm like, I can spend the next 60 years of my life fighting for that, right? And then seeing that and doing things like what we're talking about now that empower the entrepreneurs. And so we have those case studies because what I've seen happen from the organizational point of view mm-hmm. is they immediately write off sort of the small medium enterprise cultures that are created as saying, well, that works for them. That doesn't work for us. Right. And it only entrenches that. And we also see that, you know, I have a theory I have, and I, it's not well documented obviously, which is why I'm still calling it a theory. I think women are starting businesses at twice the rate as men is because the standard corporate organizational thing doesn't work. Yeah, the system is broken. So what do you do? You leave and circumvent it, right? Yeah, and they can't join the tech sort of world either because that's broken too, right? And so it's like you have to create this third alternative, which largely is creating your own organization. Um, And I think that's also the fact that the economic incentives for women are higher because if you're an MBA and you're, you know, on the managerial line and you're a white male going down that route, like you're giving up, you know, a six figure job to go and start a business. If you're sociologically speaking, not in that class, if you're a woman and you're a woman, if you're a Latina, 5% on the dollar. Yeah. You're making at most, you know, 50, $60,000, which you can replace in the income of a small business very quickly, 
right? Yeah. You can't do that as the male breadwinner. And so there's also that disincentive for men to actually get out and create these things too. Very interesting thing, right? And yeah. so again, multiple levels of action, multiple levels of change of convincing men in that category, like, wait a second, you're a good guy. Yeah. And you're going to build a great culture. Mm -hmm. right? And you're going to be able to replace this income, right? Mm -hmm. So maybe not buy into the system and come out here, right? And so I agree with you. It's just, this is the five forces all over again. There's going to be a marketplace for talent and there's going to be a marketplace um, for jobs that those people want to work at. Right. And if there are all these jobs, people don't want to work at and the incentives to work at them become so high or so low, we're going to see exactly what you're talking about. And what can we do to get into the organizations and say, you know what, here's what you're losing every day by not making a decision on this. And it's happening. It's happening today. But, you know, these are slow moving organizations. And I, I see arguments on both sides. And I'm just really glad that there are people on both camps. Right. So you um, my I have a friend named Jess Wiener, who is fantastic. She is the woman behind the Dove self-esteem campaign. Right. And she is absolutely like minded person who is all about getting into the system, into these large organizations and changing them from the inside. My thing that sort of wake, keeps me up every night, honestly, is that more people in the United States anyway are employed by small businesses than by large enterprises. So by the sheer number of it, even though I agree with you, it is a, a disjointed bunch of people who all, you know, are much more difficult to manage than 100,000 employees who are all under one roof. Um, it is still the driving force um, of the country's economy. And it is an area where you know, the numbers are really abysmal um, in terms of the disparities, right? And so I, I think that what we need is we need people on, on both sides of the spectrum. And so I'm glad we're talking. Yeah, it's both and. And, you know, here's the thing, because I, um, I was reading Competing for the Future, and it's sort of their, one of the chapters, they were like, you know, we're upfront that we're pro-big. They want big businesses, because pro, like, big businesses generate wealth. That was their argument, right? And so generate wealth and technological change. I'm like, there's a point there. Like the unicorns, like the billion dollar anomalies? Well, they're talking the GEs. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. Um, and so that was their argument. The GEs, you know, the um, Boeings, like these companies generate societal wealth in the form of actual capital and technology. Yeah. True. It so turns out that the small businesses distribute wealth. Right. And so if you just have these monolithic organizations, wealth gets funneled into a certain way and gets owned and protected by a few people. Mm -hmm. When you have the proliferation of small business and, and you know, startups, you have the distribution of that wealth across different people. And so it's actually both. Yeah. Right. And so that, that's where that was sort of a wake up call for me because I was like, why am I so triggered by that? That's mm -hmm. like, Oh, that's why. And just, we can choose where we want to be and be intentional. Like, I'm generating this and I'm recognizing that there's a problem over here. Or you can say, I'm, I'm applying action in small businesses. And I think especially with where you're coming from when it comes to minorities and women, way better lever, right? Um, with your expertise and background to work on the entrepreneurial slash small business side yeah. than in the big business side because that's, that's going to be a slow moving problem, right? A slow changing problem there. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, entrepreneurial and small business being two categories, right? Because a lot of these businesses um, don't stay small for long, which is good. Yeah. Yeah, they don't stay small for long. And that's a whole other conversation about what, when things are started up and when it's a small business. Crazy fun times there. Uh, <laughs> all righty. So you're going along, you're going along. And then um, tell, talk to us a little bit about Power to Fly. And, you know, what is it and why did you leave your nonprofit behind for Power to Fly? 
Yeah. Um, so I advise women-led startups. Um, the nonprofit um, that I co-founded um, at as part of the Athena Center um, at Barnard College is all about supporting women entrepreneurs. And so through that process, I get to meet, I get to you know get to know some of the most amazing women-led startups in the country. Um, and every once in a while, one will cross my path that I take a very special interest in and I fall in love with it. And there've been a few of those. Um, one of them is the fashion designer, Carrie Hammer, who recently uh, made headlines because she decided to use role models, not runway models. Um, you know, there are companies like Scripted, which is an early stage company that's looking to democratize the way that we buy and sell scripts for movies and TVs. It's a platform. She, and it's a big bet. She thinks that you know, the way that people read zines, the way that people read ebooks, the way that people no longer, you know, read books as much as they used to, that people will read scripts, you know, and she's banking on that. And she's also creating a platform for producers to be able to make decisions, not based on who their favorite writer is or who their bros are, but based on data, right? So 5,000 people upvoted the script, I better make a movie out of it. Um, and like that, um, power to fly crossed my desk and I met the two founders. I absolutely fell in love with them. What they were really looking to do was to change the nature of work and create really like a third option, right? So I have the option and a lot of the feedback that we get from women in the workforce is this, that they feel like they're caught between the option of being ambitious, of really prioritizing their career, but at the expense of family and other priorities because of the requirements of an inflexible workplace that requires that you be there, especially if you're in startup or high growth, you know, 12 hours a day, um, or you decide to have your career take a back seat and prioritize family and other priorities um, and sort of take all of the different cuts that come from that, right? Whether it be the pay cut, the, you know, just, the satisfaction, you know, the, the loss of satisfaction because you're an inherently ambitious person who's decided to let your career take a back seat and all of the things that come with that. You know, what we, what we know is that women feel trapped between those two choices. And what we were saying is you can be ambitious, you can be incredibly successful, you can still even go all the way up to the C-level of a company and do it by having an essentially a flexible work environment. And what we Power to Fly set out to do was to create a marketplace where you could hire amazing women from all over the world and you could hire them easily and efficiently through our platform. There are now 60,000 women on the platform in over 140 countries. And the catch is that you have to let them work from home, not all the time, at least part of the time. And because there is such a scarcity, especially of tech resources, this is a really compelling value proposition. We're essentially saying, you want engineers? We've got thousands of them. The catch is you have to let them work from home and you have to let them prioritize things in addition to their career. Um, and so that, that basically is the premise. Um, I liked Power to Fly so much that I uh, went from advising them to stepping in as their chief revenue officer for a few months. I'm now back. Uh, we've built their sales team, their biz dev team, their talent management team. Uh, we closed their Series A financing, uh, got about six and a half million um, closed to get them through the next um, phase of their growth. And now they're in really great shape. And so I've stepped down and I'm back to being their advisor um, and back to focusing on supporting women-led startups um, beyond just Power to Fly. Yeah, so let's talk about that funding process because that sounds really interesting because it's a, it's a different model and it's actually in that space where we're talking about like there's a problem here. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and so it's kind of like, you know, um, getting a tooth from the dinosaur in the sense of saying like, it's too sharp. Hey, give us one, right? That type of thing going on. So how, how did the series, like what type of backers did you get or what was the, the um, sort of um, reaction from the investors that you went after? Uh, Power to Fly was an anomaly. I will say this. Um, Power to Fly, you know, we pitched a total of, I don't know, I would say two to three weeks, probably less than a month. Um, you know, great Rolodexes, great contacts, great people who were behind um, preparing, you know, to go out and have these conversations. And in the end, um, the person who provided the original seed, who was Ken Lair, the co-founder of Huffington Post, um, came in for the Series A because he wanted to stay involved. Um, one of our clients, which is Hearst Ventures, came in and put in a piece of the pie as well. And the whole round was led by a venture capital fund um, in California called Crosslink. Um, and part of the reason they're such a great fit for Power to Fly is that um, one of the partners, for example, is on the board of 15 different marketplaces. And this is a marketplace, right? So not only do we get great um, funding, but we also get great expertise. So for all of those reasons, that was, that was the perfect fit. And it was an anomalous fundraise because it was so fast and it was so successful. And part of it, I think, had to do with the amazing press that Power to Fly started to get back in March. Um, and that's another thing that makes it kind of a unicorn. You know, women-led businesses tend to not just get underfunded, they also get underpublicized. Um, and so Power to Fly, you know, um, really hit, you know, struck a chord in, in that sense, and that helped. Um, but I, you know, but the stories that I, that I am involved with and that I hear about through the center, the reason I know this is a unicorn is because the stories that I hear for the most part are very different, right? Catherine Minshew, the CEO of The Muse, um, told the story about being in a boardroom, finishing her pitch, taking the Q&A, and having one of the investors ask her and her other female partner whether they would consider adding a male partner to add some legitimacy to their venture. You know, replace that with race. You know, I'm not, I am far from suggesting that the race issue is somehow less of an issue than the gender issue, but I do think that the vocabulary and the issues that you deal with are unique. And if you happen to be a woman of color and you have them both, then you have all of it together. But you know, nobody in 2015 would sit in a boardroom and ask two black business owners, would you consider adding a white partner to add some legitimacy to your venture? No, they I don't would, think they would ask. I just think they would be thinking it. They would. Absolutely, they would. Um, and I'm not saying everyone, but it's, it's absolutely no. possible. I'm not suggesting it's not, but I'm saying that one of the things that is unique, doesn't make it worse or better, mm -hmm. one of the things that is unique about being a woman asking for funding is that we live in a culture where things like that are okay to say and it's overt and people are pretty unapologetic about it. You know, it's, it's absolutely amazing the kind of stuff that you hear every single day. And so Power to Fly is a really happy story. I mean, I hope we have more of them. Um, but yeah, we're pretty far from being where we need to be. Yeah. I look forward to the world wherein we see two male, um, two male CEOs or two male founders pitching something. And we ask, have you considered adding a woman or minority to your board for legitimacy? <laughs> I look forward to that day. Yeah, I do too. Um, it'll happen. Um, if I'm on the investor board, it will. <laughs> <laughs> Same way here, right? Um, and let's talk about that leadership deck that you've got going on. The leadership 
the leadership deck. It, I'm just saying for the for those, uh, <laughs> yeah. For those What's your bench strength? What, what does it look like? Oh, really? Um, okay. Um, so I'm going to pull back something because you mentioned earlier that you got bit by the entrepreneurial bug. You had a bunch of startups and you got as much as we, you and I both might not like the work-life balance sort of discussion because it's really tenuous as an entrepreneur, right? Um, I'm curious today with all the different efforts that you've got going on, um, what's changed for you that you, that you feel that you're not in that position to where it's like, I, I'm just on the cusp of burning out or like, you know, I'm running too hard and what, what's changed between now and say a decade or two ago for you personally? Yeah, I think what changed for me was you can't get out of your own brain, right? So the burnout happened because I pushed myself and because I was capable of doing that. And so you can change jobs, you can change contexts, you can change many, many things, but you can't run away from, from you when you're the problem. Um, and I learned that very quickly. I learned that by, you know, stepping down from my last company and then going to school, you know, and then starting a nonprofit, this is supposed to be me on sabbatical, right? So me on sabbatical is I'm going to school at Columbia and I'm starting a nonprofit. So I know how that feels. Yeah. So you very quickly start to fill your plate with other things. It might be different things, but like you're still kind of falling into the same pattern. And so I was, I was able to pace myself and give myself, I guess, time to think what was really broken and what was broken was my model for managing myself. Right. And so then I started to spend more time on those kinds of things. Um, in 2009, I started to do a form of meditation. Um, the teacher is Sufi and she is of the belief that, you know, and agree, disagree, sort of, it doesn't matter. It was one of these theories that I, I really sort of latched onto because it worked for me. It might be a totally self-serving theory, but her theory is that, sitting meditation and a lot of the traditional ancient meditation practices were developed at a time when we as humans had very, very physically active lives. We were sowing our crops, we were walking long distances, right? And so in order to strike that balance, you had to have that quiet, sitting, still meditation. I am the kind of person who would not be able to sustain hours of sitting quietly meditating. And so the form of meditation that she developed is a form of movement meditation that incorporates dance and, you know, just physical movement. And she feels that her philosophy is the same as all of the ancient principles. It's just that we now live a largely sedentary life. And so in order to strike that same balance, you know, movement meditation. Um, and those are, that's just an example of the kind of thing where I, you know, I tried to change jobs. I tried to change location. I moved to New York. I changed all of these outside elements and finally came to the conclusion that, you know, what I needed to do was look inside. Mm -hmm. Meditation was definitely one of those things. Um, there are a lot of others, you know, really prioritizing friendships, um, really taking the time to treat my meetings with people that I love as seriously as I treat my business meetings, um, mentoring young women and having that become a really big part of my life um, and wanting to model to them a more healthy way of being. Um, so there are a lot of things that have contributed, but I would say I'm a very different person now. Yeah. It reminds me of the African proverb. I'm going to paraphrase, but it's like, no matter how fast and how far you run, you can't get away from yourself. Mm -hmm. And so, um, once you realize that and you start working on yourself, the world changes. Yeah. 
So you got a lot going on. <laughs> right now, what's the most unanticipated challenge that you're currently facing? Oh, I have a good one for you. Oh, I love good ones. Hit me. Yeah. Uh, so I have a big birthday coming up and I have a list of all the things that I wanted to do. And one of the things on my list was Burning Man. So I went to Burning Man and keep in mind, I'm, I'm a writer. And so it's like, it's so funny when like life is so ridiculous that you're just like, you cannot write this crap. On the day that I got back from Burning Man, my apartment, I live between LA and New York. So I have a place in both my apartment in the Upper West Side near Columbia University where I teach at Barnard, um, burnt down. There was an electrical fire and literally on the night that I got back from Burning Man, my apartment burnt down and the first person on the scene was a very good friend of mine who is a saxophonist, was performing about four blocks down the street at a club named Smoke. Okay. <laughs> so it was very strange. So I had just made the decision to stop being bicoastal. So I had gotten rid of my place in Los Angeles at the end of April, sorry, August. So August 31st, I turn in the keys to my place in LA and then September 8th, my New York place burns down. I went from this crazy place of abundance and multi-location and everything else to like to homeless. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't know. I mean, it goes back to what we were saying earlier. You never want something like that to happen. You know, there was a lot of loss, um, but uh, there was a friend that was using my apartment um, I had not been home into New York for about a month. And so I gave her the keys to my place and during the fire, her life was in danger. Um, and thankfully she came out and everything was fine and nobody was hurt, but there's nothing like a near miss like that to make you appreciate what really matters. Um, to this day, you know, it's been a month. I have yet to sit down and take inventory of what was lost and what was saved. I don't care. Um, you know, I spent a week in burning them with, four of my closest friends um, and it was bonding and it was beautiful and it was fun. Um, so, you know, you never want something like this to happen, but I was really lucky that it happened at the tail end of a great time in my life where I could have perspective and be able to just not let it bring me down. So yeah. probably the most unexpected thing that I'm dealing with. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, this is one of those things where we have to be really specific about a request because saying, hey, I want to be a burner, you know, it can have different interpretations. Exactly. You need to, trust me, um, I'm done asking the universe for things. <laughs> Just, I'll, take what, I'll take whatever comes up. Let's roll with that. Okay. Exactly. Exactly. All right. So if people remember nothing else about you and your body of work from this episode, what would you want them to take away? I would want them to take away the experience of somebody who is now going on 20 years and who has learned probably the most important lesson of all in business and one that you rarely hear people discuss because I think most people fail at it and that is that you can be successful and still be kind. Natalie, thanks so much for joining me. It's been a blast today. Thank you. This is great. Call me anytime. Okay, Creative Giant. So you heard it from Natalie. You can be both successful in business and kind. So look at what you're doing today, whether it's your career or whether it's your business, and find that convergence between success in business and kindness and cultivate that. Until next time, stand tall. Thanks for listening to The Creative Giant Show. 
to find more tools and inspiration for creative giants, head on over to ProductiveFlourishing.com. Stand tall, creative giant.